The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you. Simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH and your host. And today I'm delighted to welcome back my dear friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And just to let you know, folks, uh, the shows have been a bit sporadic recently. You know why the uh, domestic situations that I'm dealing with are very unpredictable. So Peter and I are recording this. It's 10.01am on Monday, November the 6th here in the UK. A couple of hours later, just gone midday for Peter in South Africa. Once we finish recording this, I'm going to post it today as well. So this is a completely fresh show recorded and broadcast on the day that it was recorded. The title of today's presentation is The Real Story of Persecution Today. So Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this topic? Well, Andrew, shortly after I returned from my two years national service in the South African Infantry, I returned to Hospital Christian Fellowship, the mission that I first joined and got my basic training and missions in. And Brother Andrew, the same Brother Andrew of God, smuggler fame, was visiting HGF headquarters in Kempton Park and giving devotions. It was a great privilege. I actually got to meet him a number of times throughout his time on earth, and uh, including before my first call up into the army and immediately afterwards. Well, Brother Andrew, first of all, reported back on the success of his Project Pearl, where he had smuggled over a million Bibles into Red China. I'd heard about the plan of this back in 1979 before going into the army, and now two years later, I heard the return of how it had succeeded and they had actually managed to smuggle a million Bibles into Red China. Of course, a drop in the bucket considering how many hundreds of millions of people are in China, but still phenomenal achievement. And he then challenged us with a vision of a seven-year Jericho prayer march. Now, when Joshua was sent into Promised Land, Jericho was one of the first cities to conquer, and they were ordered to march seven times around the city for seven days before the wall collapsed. And so uh, Brother Andrew said, this is not a Western initiative. This is actually an Eastern initiative. This is the Leipzig prayer meeting. Uh, it had already begun. So we were not praying for the persecuted church. We were praying with the persecuted church. The persecuted church in Eastern Europe were gathering and they started in Leipzig and they would gather uh, and they would come with empty candles and then one candle would be lit. And then um, as the sun had set and everything is getting dark, one after the other would would light the other person's candle, and you'd get from one suddenly thousands of candles lit in the 
village market square or wherever they were gathering. And then when the people went home, they would plant a candle in the windowsill of their home with the curtains open and the candle on and all lights in the home switched off. And this made a powerful impact throughout. What they were saying was, not all the darkness can put out a single candle. Light is more powerful than darkness. The light of the gospel is far more powerful than the darkness of communism and atheism. And so the protests of these people in Eastern Europe, they'd suffered 45 years under communist persecution and atheist indoctrination. And they were praying now in the seven-year prayer focus for God to bring down the Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall, open up Eastern Europe for the gospel and collapse the Soviet Union. Well, Brother Andrew gave this vision to us and I must admit, I sat there thinking, this is a bridge too far. I'd seen the Berlin Wall. I'd seen the Iron Curtain. And there was no doubt in my mind at that time that the Iron Curtain was an immovable fact of 20th century history, and it would be up until Jesus returned. I never thought in my lifetime that I'd see the Berlin Wall come down. You know, the Iron Curtain that descended from Stettin in the north to Trieste in the south, the barbed wire, the barricades, the walls, the machine gun towers, sealing off the captive nations occupied by the Soviet Union from their neighbors in the West. Uh, the betrayal of, of Yalta demonstrated. In fact, I remember some great quotes of Margaret Thatcher who said, the Berlin Wall stands as um, concrete proof that when people choose to be free, they ch when people have a choice, they choose to be free. And the West has got its problems. Freedom has its problems, but we've never needed to build walls to keep our people in. And sure enough, Soviet Union had to build walls and obstacle courses and minefields and have killer dogs and barbed wire fences and uh, people being shot in the back to keep the people inside the workers' paradise. So I like this idea, mobilize people to pray for the collapse of the Berlin Wall, of the Iron Curtain. And sure enough, what happened seven years later? 1989, um, I was smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe uh, with my uh, bride, Lenora, whose dad had been 67 years ministering in Europe, mostly behind the Iron Curtain, Eastern Europe. And what a privilege to be involved in smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe. I got to Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, to Romania, Yugoslavia. And uh, what an experience to see what life was like behind the Iron Curtain under communism, and the people being persecuted and harshly mistreated, the persecution, violence in many cases, but the resilience of these people, uh, the the kind of resilience, for example, one place where the cosmonaut came back from outer space after he had uh, gone just a small orbit around the Earth, and uh, Yuri Gillen came back and was sent on a propaganda tour around the Russian schools to tell the children, I've been to space and I can tell you there is no heaven, and there's no God, which considering the very small section of space between the Earth and the Moon that he orbited, it's a bit ridiculous for him to make a categoric statement that there's no God and there's no heaven. Um, honestly, he wasn't all-knowing and he hadn't been throughout the entire universe anyway, but one brave young girl stood up and said, but comrade, the Bible says only the pure in heart will see God. Another place in Eastern Europe when the communists were giving their atheistic indoctrinations, there was a commissar who had laid out, given hours of proofs that there's no God and there's no Christianity. And at the end, he said, does anyone have anything to say? And one brave 
young man shouted out, Christ is risen, and the entire school resounded, he is risen indeed. And you can just imagine that poor commissar must have felt so deflated. Here he had just poured out heart and soul, giving them scientific socialism proof against God, and these Russians were still determined, but they knew Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. And this kind of steadfastness, this resilience, uh, was a great challenge. Well, the amazing thing is that this seven-year Jericho prayer march was successful on the 9th of November, and here we are just short of 9th of November. This week we'll have the 9th of November, which is the anniversary of the coming down of the Berlin Wall. 34 years ago, the Berlin Wall came down, and then the Iron Curtain collapsed. One off the other, countries in 1989 start to topple. Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and then uh, East Germany with the Berlin Wall collapsing in 9 November, followed by Ceausescu's Romania, probably the most violent and um, harsh of the communist dictatorships in Eastern Europe. Ceausescu's uh, dictatorship absolutely floundered. Protests of tens of thousands of people flooded the streets of Timisoara. Uh, the security officer came in with tanks, tried to wipe out the people. The people resisted. And before you knew it, the army had joined the population and fighting against the security police. And on Christmas Day, the 25th of November of December 1989, the culmination of that great year, Ceausescu, the dictator of Romania, was shot by his own army after a summary trial. And uh, the people were dancing in the streets, crying out, Dracula is dead. The Antichrist has been killed on Christmas Day. And the church bells rang, not just all over Romania, but all over the whole of Eastern Europe as people celebrated Christmas and celebrated freedom for the first time in 45 years. An absolutely extraordinary challenge. Well, 30 years ago, just shortly after this, I was gathering with a group of missions to the persecuted church in Chicago. There was Open Doors, Voice the Martyrs, ourselves and other missions to the persecuted church. And we were trying to see how can we perpetuate this phenomenal movement of the seven-year Jericho prayer march. And, of course, that was a unique event in history, uh, but it would be nice if one could perpetuate it somehow. We need to encourage people about the power of prayer to change history and lives. And so November was the date that came to our mind to mobilize an international day of prayer for the Persecuted Church because the 9th of November is so important. It is the greatest date in my lifetime, the date when the Berlin Wall came down, when the Iron Curtain collapsed. And 1989 was a phenomenal year. Um, it, the year started with South African troops fighting communists in Angola and winning the war in Angola, defeating the Cubans. It was the high point of the Cold War. It was the um, high point of South African military achievement. We had defeated the Soviets and the Cubans in Angola. And so we had won the war. And now the missionary work of smuggling Bibles behind Iron Curtain, decades of gospel radio broadcasts, working behind the lines, underground church work, smuggling in Bibles. Now this, we'd seen the culmination of all this hard work and sacrifice, success, uh, the Iron Curtains collapse, the Soviet Union is tottering, the Eastern Bloc countries, the Warsaw Pact has collapsed, and people are protesting and preaching in the streets of Bucharest and in um, Prague from one side of the country to the other, in East Berlin, of the Gospels being proclaimed and the Berlin Walls being physically dismantled by the people on the ground. Absolutely tremendous. But also, there's the 11th of November. 
and 11th of November is super serious because on the 11th of November, we remember the soldiers who've died in the wars. And uh, for this reason, dated on the 11th hour of the 11th, uh, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918, when the guns went silent of the worst war in history, the First World War came to an end with the armistice. And as a result of that, the 11th of the 11th is always a day of remembrance uh, around the world, especially in the English-speaking world. And so we thought choosing this great month in November to try and mobilize churches around the world to focus on the persecuted church. Of course, we should be remembering the persecuted all year round, and we should be um, mobilizing Christians to care for the persecuted uh, throughout the year. However, just to get things started, we thought it's so important for us to have a date that we will try and unify the church worldwide to pray for the persecuted church. And so it was said that on the second Sunday of November each year, we would seek to mobilize an international day of prayer for the persecuted church, in short, IDOP, IDOP. And Frontline Fellowship being based in Africa, we were given the task of IDOP Africa. So we set up the website www.idop-africa and the Facebook page IDOP-Africa, uh, to focus on mobilizing concern and prayer for the persecuted church in Africa. Now, IDOP is now a phenomenon. There's something like 300,000 churches participating worldwide in International Days of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. So it's the biggest prayer movement on earth now, so it's grown in the last 30 years. But it all started with the seven-year Jericho prayer march, and then uh, the idea of trying to institutionalize this into an annual date to remember this great victory. So we should we should remember the 9th of November, we should remember the 11th of November, but also the second Sunday of November to mobilize churches to focus on the persecuted church. So the situation is this. Statistically, there are 76 countries in the world today where the governments are hostile to Christianity and persecute Christians violently. Now this would mean they have severe persecution, discrimination, and high levels of persecution of Christians. That affects 360 million Christians in the world today. 360 million Christians in the world today suffer high levels of persecution for their faith from their governments. 76 countries in the world have laws hostile to Christianity. Now, this equates to one in every seven Christians in the world are persecuted for their faith. One in seven worldwide. In Africa, that's one in five. One in every five Christians in Africa live under a government that persecutes Christian Christianity directly. In Asia, two out of every five Christians in Asia live under governments that are hostile to Christianity and persecute them, such as Red China and North Korea. And in Latin America, it's the freest. Only one in every 15 Christians in Latin America live in a country where the government is hostile to Christianity. Now, this works out to the top 10 or the worst 10 countries in the world, officially according to World Watch, um, is North Korea. North Korea is the most hostile to Christianity, followed by Afghanistan, where they're going literally door to door. Since Americans betrayed Afghanistan, the Taliban have been exterminating the Christians, literally doing door to door searches for Bibles or Christian radio or anything else they can find. And Somalia, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Pakistan, Iran, and Sudan. These are the 10 countries in the world where Christians are the most persecuted. But there are another, um, well, there's 76 countries in total. Churches were bombed in uh, the Congo recently, 17 Christians killed, many injured. 
In Burkina Faso, in West Africa, 50 women were abducted, and we're seeing that sort of attack on Christianity worldwide. There's all kinds of persecution against Christians uh, in, in the world, and this includes Christians in the Muslim Middle East, Christian girls in particular being kidnapped and forcibly converted to Islam and forced to convert and then to marry a Muslim. And uh, often young girls being forced to marry men much, much, much older than them. And this is done to Christians specifically because they're not protected under Sharia law, um, Islamic law in the Muslim Middle East. So Christians are under persecution today. Officially, last year, 2,110 churches were attacked. 4,542 Christians were detained for their faith by their governments, and 5,621 Christians were murdered last year. Now, the country in the world where Christians are suffering the most violent persecution in terms of numbers of deaths a year is actually Nigeria. Nigeria, which has a majority of Christian population but a Muslim government, in the 12 northern provinces of Nigeria, they have Islamic Sharia law. So there are over 300, there are over 30 provinces in Nigeria, but the 12 northern tw uh, provinces are all Muslim, and the Christians are persecuted there. And in just a five-year period, 1,000 churches were attacked and 17,000 Christians killed in Nigeria by Boko Haram, uh, which means literally the Bible is forbidden, Boko Haram Islamic terrorists, jihadists. So there is serious violent persecution going on throughout the world. And I, as a missionary, have for the last 40 years been focused on serving persecuted churches. I've worked in 38 countries. It's involved me in eight wars, three revolutions. Sometimes I've been arrested. I've been bombed, rocketed, strafed, um, and uh, locked up in prison on a number of occasions. So um, I know a little bit about what Christians suffer under persecution and I'm friends with many people who've suffered a lot. And my wife, Lenora, grew up in a home where they had people like Richard Wurmbrandt, who was famous, the Lutheran pastor is famous for writing the books Tortured for Christ around dining room table. Richard Wurmbrandt had been locked up for 14 years, much of that in solitary confinement for being a Lutheran pastor. And uh, he, in fact, was locked up over an interesting um, event Maybe some of your listeners have read the book Tortured for Christ or seen the film Tortured for Christ. They've got a drama out on it too, which is well worth seeing. Richard Wormbrandt was a Lutheran pastor in Romania who was challenged by his wife to stand up and oppose the communist propaganda. They were in a hall where uh, the communists had a lineup of ministers from all kinds of denominations traipsing up to the platform and uh, on the stage saying communism is Christianity, and this is what Jesus taught, and all good Christians should support communism and should join the Communist Party and so on. And his wife turned to him, Sabrina, turned to Richard and said, go and wipe the shame from the face of the Church of Christ. And Richard Wilmer said to his wife, Sabrina, but if I do this, you know that you will no longer have a husband. And Sabrina responded, I don't need a coward for a husband. Can you imagine? And Richard Wilmer went up and he said, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does Christ have with Belial? And come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And he spoke out boldly and the whole program was being carried live by radio. And you can imagine he humiliated the communists and 
got tremendous applause and support from the people on the ground that at last there was a minister willing to stand up against the Communist Party. Well, he ended up in solitary confinement and tortured and imprisoned. And as Richard Wormbrand said, not that long afterwards, the very ministers who had been lying and deceiving in order to kowtow to and grovel before the communist masters, they ended up in the same prison cells just a bit later. He said, the difference is I was there with a clear conscience. They were tortured because they compromised and they cowardice and their treachery. And Romania is just one example. Well, Sabrina Wormbrandt was soon locked up for five years as a slave in women's prison, and she was digging canals and pulling barges along the canals like, like a mule with ropes around her and being whipped. Well, Sabrina Wormbrandt um, and Richard Wormbrandt were regular guests around the dining room table of my um, wife's family in Salzburg in Austria. And so she grew up with people like Brother Andrew visiting and so on too, and quite an experience being able to see what persecution was. My wife chose to be baptized in Romania because being baptized was the turning point. It was the point beyond of no return in a communist country. So when Lenora was baptized at Second Baptist Church, Aradia, what is today Emmanuel Baptist Church, uh, there were over 50 people being baptized that day, and each one gave their testimony beforehand. And one woman who gave her testimony People were weeping while she gave a testimony, and so Lenora wanted to know what the, te- what the story was and got it translated for her. So this woman testified five male members of her family were Communist Party members. Her father, her husband, her brother, two uncles, Communist Party members. And she said, this morning my husband came into the bedroom, put a knife to my throat and said, if you get baptized today, I will kill you. And she went ahead, testified this, and was baptized. And you can imagine a whole congregation is weeping because they knew that she knew that this is real, this is true, this this is a real threat, and uh, the man could easily act on it. Well, the pastor, Paul Negrut, who's a friend of ours, he went to uh, the home with this woman afterwards in order to speak to her husband, and he was absolutely stunned because he knew that she knew he was serious about this. And the man surrenders life to Christ. He was so stunned that his wife would have risked her life for um, or been willing to die for Christ. So he gets converted, and of course he gets kicked out of the Communist Party. He loses his job, he loses his home, which is all related to your work and your position with the party. The government controlled everything, where you live, what work you do, and so on. So they had to move into an overcrowded home of another Christian family because they'd lost their own home. And this just gives you the idea of the kind of persecution there. Children would regularly be pleading with their parents, please let me become a communist. The children, if they weren't wearing the red scarf, if they weren't part of the commerce party youth, the commissar, then they would be denied any higher education, meaning even high school. And you would have these Christian children saying, I don't want to be a street sweep and a factory worker. I want to be a doctor or a pharmacist or something like this, teacher. And they had no chance of that if they remained a Christian. Higher education was reserved for Communist Party members. And so tremendous pressure put to bear on the families. There was a communist youth in Russia who betrayed his parents, who spoke out and denounced his parents who were Christians to the KGB, and they were, of course, killed. And this boy received a 
order of merit from uh, the Soviet Union party. They built statues to him all over the Soviet Union and lifted him up as the example to youth to be willing to even betray your own parents and to show that your loyalty to the party is greater than your loyalty to your own family. This was lifted up as the ideal in the Soviet Union at that time. So my family on my wife's side has uh, generations of work working behind Iron Curtain, helping persecute churches. In fact, when I got married in 1989, Lenore and I went on a mission with her parents and we were smuggling Bibles. We were in a separate car just behind them. They were ahead of us, crossing Iron Curtain, going into Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, into Hungary, Romania, smuggling Bibles, working behind the Iron Curtain and serving the persecuted church, teaching in the underground Bible study for group, the Bible college for pastors and training, the School of the Prophets, they called it at that time. Today it's grown to being the biggest theological seminary in Europe, uh, Emmanuel Christian University in Oradia. That's in Romania. <clears throat> so this is why uh, we try to mobilize people specifically in November and as we head towards the second Sunday in November to mobilize our friends, family, and churches to focus on the persecuted church. The Bible tells us to remember the prisoners as if chained with them because we're in the, in the body too. We are told continually to remember the persecuted. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. It is a command in Scripture to uh, do unto the least of these, uh, whatever you did unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did unto me, said the Lord. I met a person who is a great inspiration for the persecuted church in Romania. My father-in-law, Bill Bethman, introduced me to Nicola Moldovano. Now, Nicola Moldovano is called the Bach of Romania. He, in his lifetime, composed more than 6,000 hymns, hundreds of those while suffering excruciating torture at the hands of communists in Romania. Now, imagine this, without any access to a Bible, without any books, without any musical instruments, without even pen or paper, Nicola Moldovano composed hymns of praise to God and committed them to memory to later be put down paper and published when he was finally released from prison. Richard Wombrand testified that Nicola Moldovano was one of the greatest saints he ever met in his 14 years in prison. Now, Nicola Moldovano was a Christian member of the Orthodox Church, but the Orthodox Church, what they called the um, the Lord's Army. The Lord's Army is like the Salvation Army, but of the Orthodox Church in Romania, and they were an evangelical wing. And he served in the Romanian army from a young boy, already from age 12. He was in the army as what they called some of the army's children. So young boys who were destitute could join the army, and they would polish shoes and clean rifles, and uh, they would do the ironing and washing and whatever for the older soldiers. And then later on, he became an active soldier fighting during the Second World War against the Soviets. Well, he at one point sold his daily rations for milk and bread for a whole month in order to afford to buy his own Bible. And Nikola Moldovano made so many great hymns of faith that when the communists took over the Sov over Romania, they smashed every bone in, in his hands. In both hands, every finger was broken because he loved to play the piano and organ to the glory of the Lord. Well, he had to relearn to play the piano afterwards because his hands now were like eagle's claws. They were horribly deformed and, and crippled and twisted and contorted. In fact, to shake Nikolai Moldovano's hands is like shaking the hands of an eagle's talons. It's a very a bizarre feeling, but 
but this man still knew how to play the piano and the organ to the glory of God. And so Nicola Moldovano would be in prison, in solitary confinement, and hundreds of his hymns were composed in solitary confinement. And one of his books is called Songs of Grace, Songs Released from Prison. And he produced magnificent hymns like uh, Break My Will, Even With Heavy Blows. Only grace, if we gather together in the Lord, don't doubt but believe. Teach me to do your will. I sing to you, my God, and break my plans. And these hymns are sung in all the churches in Romania. In fact, most of the hymn books in Romania of any Protestant church is Nicola Moldovano's hymns, hundreds of which were composed under torture in prison. Now, these are just some of the examples of people that we want to be inspired from. When the Bible speaks about we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and you think of Hebrews 11 with the uh, heroes of the faith. Well, it's not only from the Bible, but also from church history and even recent history that we have some of these great inspiring examples, these clouds of witnesses who shine like the stars. So uh, we have set up this website, www.idop-africa.org, uh, where we've got posters and videos and articles on different countries where there's persecution today and Bible studies and sermons and audios and videos in order to mobilize people to remember the persecuted, to learn from the persecuted, to see persecution in the Bible, what the Bible teaches about persecution, to see persecution history. Fox's Book of Martyrs, for example, focuses a lot on Christians through the ages who've suffered for Christ from the apostles through the Reformation. So many people have given their lives for Christ. How many people in the English-speaking world know that the first Bible ever translated into English was translated in Germany because it was illegal to translate the Bible to English in England. And the first shipment of Bibles in English, the New Testaments in English, the first printed New Testaments in English, were printed in Germany, smuggled from the Netherlands into England in bales of cotton, and almost all were intercepted by order of the Bishop of London and burned. The first New Testaments printed and translated from the original Greek and Hebrew, uh, they were all burned. There's only two Tyndale New Testaments available to the, the stand. I think one was sold recently for one and a half million pounds at an auction. Very valuable and very rare. And William Tyndale was betrayed by a false brethren and burned at the stake for the crime of translating the Bible into English. How many people know that the Bible we have in English is 90% the work of William Tyndale who died so that we could have the Bible in our own language? And all over the world we need to remember uh, the costs that were, the sacrifice that were paid by people that we might have the faith and freedom that we have today. Now, I've been a missionary to Persecute Church now for 40 years, and at one time it was my privilege to get the Bible printed in the Mora language, M-O-R-U, a language of South Sudan. And we got these printed in Singapore, uh, at the cheapest place we could get them printed, and uh, delivered to Mombasa, and then we had to transport them into Sudan. That included smuggling them behind enemy lines to get them to the people in Equatoria who spoke the Mora language. Well, the Bible translator, Canon Ezra Lawiri, had been killed in ambush with the Arabs uh, just about nine years before as he was trying to get this Bible taken to printers and to get printed. When I learned that the Bible was translated, I undertook to get Frontline Fellowship to take the responsibility to get this Bible printed. Now, of course, that's very expensive. In fact, um, even though we got a very good deal uh, because of the bulk printing and Singapore 
has high quality and because they have virtually no tax, it's a nice tax haven. The costs were quite low. But even so, as we got those Bibles, it worked out about two and a half dollars per Bible uh, from Singapore. But 10,000 um, Bibles printed, that's still 25,000 rand, uh, sorry, $25,000 uh, job. So a 10,000 print run, which is pretty minimum for such a large amount of Bibles, uh, people that need Bibles. So you can imagine um, that's still a lot of money to trust the Lord for. And our little mission, we obviously didn't have the resources for that. We needed designated funds, but we managed to get the first 10,000 copies of the Bible and Moral delivered to these people into South Sudan. And, and as we brought those Bibles in, as we, we flew them in, had to charter a DC-3 um, uh, old Dakota plane, flown ex-South African Air Force um, turboprop conversion, a South African Air Force pilot who is now flying as a, a freelancer who delivered these Bibles in for us. And as we landed on an airstrip that had never been used for uh, Bibles before, it had been in the hands of the enemy just a few months before, a newly liberated airstrip was used as we flew in these Bibles and then had them, we literally had to transport them across um, a river, Crocodile Fest River, uh, dug out canoes and, and carry these Bibles on people's heads, get them delivered to the different places. Well, when we got to this one church where we were delivering the Bibles, the first Bibles in the Mora language, just a few hundred meters from where the Bible translator Ken Ezra Lurie had died, had been killed in ambush and where he is buried, uh, we came under aerial bombardment on that Sunday morning. So I was delivering the Bibles to this community where the Bible translator died, and we were bombed on Sunday morning. We'd just gone through the evangelism explosion presentation. I've just gone through, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure that you'd go to heaven? We were going through the gospel presentation, and the cry went up, Antonov, uh, which is the name of the Soviet aircraft that uh, the Sudan Air Force was using to bomb churches. And I've heard many a false alarm. Just because the plane's flying overhead doesn't mean you're the target. So I was very slow getting out of the church. I was the last one out of the church, actually. People fled out. Um, and, you know, you don't want to get in the way of people in a stampede. So I took my time, got my Bibles and books together. And as I was putting my head under the thatch roof, and the thatch was very thick and the thatch roof's good to keep the, the heat out. And it also keeps the sound out. Uh, as I put my head out from under the thatch, ducking to go out of the church, I heard the high-pitched screams of the bombs, and I knew it, these were bombs coming. And I didn't have time to look up. It was so intense. The crescendo of the descending bombs was so high. I knew I had no time to look or to take another step or to get to the trenches or to the bomb shelter. All I could do was lie flat on the ground. As I, as I flung myself to the ground flat, I felt the ground shake and the bombs exploded. Uh, five bombs in the first run uh, and they were very close. I could feel the heat of, of the bombs even uh, as the pillars of fire went up in the distance uh, around us. And all these bombs were landing around the church. And then I dived for um, uh, for further cover, crawled uh, further. And I knew from what my mother had said, because she'd been involved in the bombings in Berlin, she said, when a bomb's exploding near you, you must keep your mouth open. Don't clench your teeth. Your ears your eardrums could burst. And I'm remembering it at that moment. And my father talked about 
during the Blitz when he walked across the parade ground of his uh, Royal Artillery uh, base and uh, he said the Heinkel 111s were coming over and uh, he was getting bombed. He said he flattened himself on the parade ground and tilted his helmet to cover his neck. He said everything that goes up will come down. And he saw his barracks splintered uh, in front of him, just all the pieces of wood flying high into the end and felt himself being pummeled. Well, that's what I experienced. And I'm remembering what my parents said as I'm lying there flat and feel all this filth and dirt and debris that's gone flying up into the sky with the branches of trees and leaves and uh, clumps of earth and rock. Whatever went up was coming down. Suddenly I was getting pummeled by the rocks and stones coming down, the dirt falling on me from head to toe. And I wish I had a helmet like my dad had to tilt back to protect my neck and my uh, head from all of the uh, debris that had been flung up. Well, there we were in this church bombed, and I stood up to try and see how American uh, guests were doing. And as I was there, somebody ran up to me and started shouting in my face because I could hardly hear. It was so dull. Your hearing is so affected when you have a high-pitched explosion near you. And he pointed up, and I looked up in the sky, and sure enough, above us, could see the Antonov had come back over us again, second run, and I could see a small black dot under the plane, and then a second, then a third. And the, plainly, there were three more bombs coming down this, and everything in you just says, run, flee. But I knew from my military training, you don't flee. You could run into the bomb blast. Very hard to tell where the bombs are going to fall. The best thing you can do is lie flat. You've got a better chance of survival lying flat because uh, even at 100 meters from impact, a piece of shrapnel can kill you. More important that you're lying flat, you've got a much better chance of survival as the bomb explodes and bomb goes up and outwards. And if you're lying flat, you could survive a bomb blast from a very close distance, whereas you've got no chance of you standing upright, running in whatever direction. And so I, I lay still. And there was no space in the bomb shelter or in the trench where I could hide with everyone else. Everyone was cramming it to the maximum. And uh, so as I saw, I was very close to a big tree. I realized this is not intelligent. If that bomb bursts on one of the branches, we'll have an air burst, which will be far more deadly than a ground burst. And so being close to a tree was not clever, but there was no time to move anywhere else. Sure enough, that bomb came straight through the tree, crashed through multiple branches, crash, 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 buried itself in the ground before exploding. Just as well, if it had detonated on one of the branches, we would have all been dead. And shortly after that, as I I felt something hit me on the side, and it was such a heavy whack that um, I thought, that's it, I must be killed. And, uh, you know, you don't feel any pain initially, just like if you fall off your bicycle or if you cut yourself there's no pain initially. There's this, um, basically, it's it's a mercy of God, as David Livingston said, when he's being bitten by the lion, uh, he said, and his shoulder's been crushed, he said there was no pain initially, and he thinks it's a mercy of God, the initial shock that uh, prevents an antelope from feeling pain when a lion's or a cheetah's caught it. And I felt no pain initially, but I knew I'd been hit on the side, and when... Uh, the dust had settled and I brushed it off. I expect to see blood, but there was no blood. And it turned out that it must have been a piece of bark of tree that hit me, not metal, or I wouldn't have survived. And uh, yet I had a couple of cracked ribs. And as the physio told me later, it'll take six weeks for the bone to heal. There's nothing we can do for a bone that's cracked. But for every time I laughed, sneezed, coughed, 
um, in the next uh, uh, six weeks was agony. Uh, but then six weeks later, suddenly no pain. So God has built our bodies to be able to heal from within, which was extraordinary. But the reason why I'm telling this is that when the bombing finished, we regathered in the church and incredibly, we didn't lose anyone. I walked around to see who else might have been injured or killed. Nobody else, nobody was killed and virtually nobody else was injured. I was about the only injury there with the cracked ribs. And we continued the church service. And in fact, we gained people. There were more people in the service after the bombing than there were before. We continued the church service and it was a five-hour church service as the people received the first Bibles ever produced in their language, the first complete Bible in a moral language. And as we rejoiced, I told him the story of William Tyndale and said, do you realize that that there are people who hate God so much are willing to kill to stop the uh, gospel advancing? There's others who love God so much, they're willing uh, to die to advance the gospel. And I told him the testimony of Canon Ezra Lawiri, who had given his life that we could have the Bible in Moro today, and told him of William Tyndale, who gave his life that people could have the Bible in English. And to think of that, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but if he loses his own soul? What message is more important than the gospel? And you think that the people who hate the word of God so much are willing to ban it and to try to bomb it, but there's others who love the word of God so much are willing to give their lives that others may have the word of God for themselves. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that's why it's, it's so important for us to remember the persecuted. Now, I've had a few occasions of being locked up and of being interrogated and tortured in, in communist prisons, and therefore I've got some understanding of, of what Richard Wurmbrandt wrote about. And an ounce of experience is worth a ton of theory. We need to remember the persecuted. We need to remember that around the world today there are Christians who are suffering for the faith, who are being kidnapped, being bombed, being forced into forced marriages, being um, uh, tortured. There are Christians around the world being denied um, high education because of their faith. And of course, I'm speaking only about the violent persecution of the church in places like North Korea and the Middle East and Pakistan and Yemen and Sudan and Iran. But there's other kinds of persecution going on in countries like Britain, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, where the government and the media and the education institutions can prevent you from uh, having a platform or can remove you. We've had people, professors, losing their jobs in universities for saying nothing more serious than, well, there's only two genders or marriage can only be between a man and a woman. And that alone is enough to get you fired or failed. Um, and people losing opportunities or a medical doctor refusing to do an abortion or a nurse um, counseling a patient that life begins at conception and abortion is murder. And we know people have been prosecuted and have lost their jobs and have lost promotions and have uh, been in different ways discriminated against for making a stand on the right to life or on the nature of marriage or some other biblical principle. People witnessing for Christ have been arrested in Bristol for doing open-air preaching of the gospel. Bristol, where George Whitfield uh, launched the Great Evangelical Awakening. We know people who've gotten into trouble for um, stating what the Bible states in Hyde Park, where you're meant to be able to say anything and preach and speak uh, freely. So plainly, there are thought police at work today, and like George Orwell warned us in 1984, who are investigating thought crimes, and you've got tremendous pressure and prejudice 
going on in the world today. And we need to be alert to this. And we need to resist this kind of um, continual pressure against uh, Christians who are trying to make a stand for the right to life and uh, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by him. We are lost. Jesus is the way. We are deceived. Jesus is the truth. We are dead in our trespasses. Jesus is the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Now, that might be a thought crime in some people's mind, but that is the truth. That is what the Bible says. And we need to make a stand. We need to be involved in evangelism. We need to be speaking up for the persecuted church. And with increase of terrorism and increase in um, persecution and prejudice around the world, it's absolutely vital that we are involved in making a stand against the compromise, the corruption, the crime and intolerance, prejudice and persecution today uh, by making a stand on the Bible and for Christ today. And this is what we try to do with International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted. Persecution is a reality today. And if you want to know where people are persecuted and how they are persecuted and what the Bible teaches and what we can do practically to speak up for the persecuted, visit the www.frontlinemissionsa.org website, frontlinemissionsa.org, or www.idop-africa.org if you want specifically on the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted. We have videos, we have audios, we have books. I've written books like In the Killing Fields of Mozambique, Holocaust and Rwanda, Slavery, Terrorism and Islam, and Faith Under Fine Sudan, and also Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, which gives many testimonies of evangelizing in prisons and under fire and evangelizing terrorists and seeing uh, our enemies won to Christ. David was a conqueror. David killed Goliath. He is a conqueror. But Jesus Christ is more than a conqueror. He took Saul, the persecutor of the church, and he turned him into Paul, the missionary and the apostle of the church. And I've had the joy and privilege of fighting communists, but also seeing communists brought to Christ. I've had the privilege of preaching the gospel in terrorist bases, showing Christian films like the Jesus film in Portuguese. And I've seen communists come forward, lay their AK-47s in the dirt and um, kneel down next to me and surrender their life to Christ. I've had the chance of baptizing people who are enemies of Christ, persecutors of the church, who now have become evangelists for us. And some of the people who I've seen brought to Christ were trained at Patricia Lumumba University in the Soviet Union. Uh, the terrorist training school for Africans where they literally uh, train people in how to be um, Marxist mass murderers and persecutors in Africa. And some of them have ended up being our evangelists and couriers, Bible smugglers. So we have got a track record and experience in bringing communists and jihadists to the Lord, Muslims and Marxists to the Lord, terrorists, enemies of the gospel, persecute the church, beating them. So that that is being more than a conqueror. I am more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loved us. We can take our enemies and turn them into our friends, into our co-workers, and into our allies. Uh, just like Richard Wombrandt and Brother Andrew and Nikolai Moldovano testified how they've got people who used to be the enemies of Christ who now are their co-workers in advancing the kingdom. I think at this particular time in history, as people are seeing an increase in terrorism and persecution, we need to counterattack. The best form of defense is attack. And we attack with the gospel of Christ. We we can win our enemies uh, to the Lord. This is the vision I got at the end of my time in the South African infantry. They are coming to us. 
with bombs? Have we gone to them with Bibles? They're coming to us with hate. Have we gone to them with the love of Christ? They are coming to subvert our countries with their communist terrorism. But we can subvert them with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ by fulfilling the Great Commission. We can actually undermine communist countries and, and Islamic uh, jihadist countries as well. And we have succeeded in doing so. And I've seen some great success stories like Mozambique, which was a communist country when we started to work there. Nobody under 18 allowed in church, no missionaries allowed, the Bible banned. And yet today Mozambique is free for the gospel. Uh, we worked long and hard to see Mozambique as a country, one for Christ. Same we could say about Angola. South Sudan, which used to be a place of tremendous persecution, but now it's free for the gospel. And we've seen all over Eastern Europe countries that used to be under communism, now freed and with more Christians in Eastern Europe than on Western Europe. So 70 years of atheist indoctrination and communist persecution in the Soviet Union failed to destroy the church there. There are many millions of Christians standing for Christ in Russia and Ukraine today and throughout the whole of Eastern Europe. And we can learn from the persecuted church. There's a lot we can learn from the persecuted church, as much we can do to actually serve the persecuted church. And uh, I think as we think of the real story of persecution today, it's important to know my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. We need to be informed and we need to be involved. We need to be interceding and we need to be doing something for the people there. There's always something we can do. And the church is the keys to the kingdom. What we bind will be bound. What we loose will be loosed. And let us remember those who are being persecuted for their faith, particularly at this time as we approach Remembrance Sunday. Thank, Thank you, Andrew. Back to you. Thank you, Peter. Yes, and um, just we've got a few minutes left. Could you please, you talked about uh, attack being the best form of defence. Now, could you explain, please, uh, imprecatory prayer, where it can be found in the Bible and how a Christian should use it in accordance with uh, God, please? Yes, in fact, I must say the first time I started to hear about imprecatory prayers, I was in Angola and there were the Christians uh, who were involved in uh, praying against the persecutors of the church, and they were praying the Psalms. And I was a bit uncomfortable to hear people praying for God to break the arm of the wicked and evil man and break the teeth in their mouths and uh, to destroy the wicked. I was thinking, well, that doesn't sound very, very Christian. And yet they pointed out but these prayers in the Bible. And sure enough, the middle book of the Bible, the prayer book of the Bible, the hymn book of the Bible, the Psalms are full of prayers of imprecations. 90 of the 550 psalms include imprecations or prayers for justice. And so praying for justice is praying the psalms of the Bible, asking God to intervene. It's <coughs> prayers for justice and for judgment. And in fact, in, in uh, Revelation 6, you hear the, the prayers of the persecuted church, where the persecuted church is praying um, for God to judge the wicked on the earth and to avenge their blood. And they are not condemned for that prayer in Revelation 6. They are each given a white robe and told to wait patiently a little while longer and uh, until a full number of their servants and fellow servants have been killed as they had been. And so the Lord encourages us to pray for justice and that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. It itself will endure forever. Martin Luther said, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying for Satan's kingdom and all those who are resisting God's kingdom to be defeated and smashed. 
when you pray for God's will to be done, you're praying for the, Satan's will to be frustrated and confounded and utterly destroyed. And we've got examples. I've written examples in praying for justice, which you can see on a website and in books I've written like uh, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ and Putting Feet to Your Faith, how there have been remarkable incidences of God judging communist officials and persecutors of the church and bringing freedom to countries that were under persecution. We were praying for God to uh, intervene in Mozambique to stop the persecution of Christians there when a tremendous thunderstorm uh, hit this plane, the Tupolev, Russian Tupolev plane that the dictator, Samora Michel, was traveling in, and this plane crashed into pieces in the eastern Transvaal, in the Lombombo Mountains, and the plans of the communists for overthrowing the Christian nation of Malawi, a neighboring country, was revealed, translated, and published worldwide. And God not only judged the persecutor, but he saved the country in answer to prayer. And we've got many examples like that, which are accounts in the Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ book. Thank you, Peter. Um, I'll just say my impractory prayer, which many of you who generally listen to the Monday show, The Lime Is, will be familiar with. The key is, and this is what I learned from Peter, is because I was very nervous about using impractory prayer before because I heard someone else say, oh, you must never do that. And then, of course, it is biblical. But the key is, is you do not pray for your enemies. You pray for God's, uh, you you pray uh, against God's enemies. So um, my yes. the way I use it is in my daily prayer. Um, please, this is the section that you'll be familiar with. Uh, please hasten the destruction of your enemies, those your precious son Jesus Christ warned us about, the children of Satan, the synagogue of Satan, and all those who break your laws that you determine are beyond redemption. So it's who God determines is beyond redemption. The children of Satan is, of course, taken from the book of John, chapter 8, that Jesus Christ warns us about. The synagogue of Satan that he also warns us about is taken from the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 9. So I've tried to be accurate there in praying for the destruction of the enemies of God, not necessarily my enemies, although there certainly has been some overlap in my lifetime, Peter. So uh, is that is that yes. prayer a good example, or would you change any of that? that no, that, that that's quite correct. We pray against God's enemies, and we're not taking the law into our own hands. We're asking God to act. So praying in precatory prayers, turning to God for justice, is appealing to the highest court imaginable, the Supreme Court, the absolute ultimate Supreme Court, the eternal judge. We're asking God, the creator, to intervene. So we know we do not get full justice on earth, and uh, therefore it's important for us to seek for God to bring justice. Now, we know in eternity he will, but sometimes God mercifully answers prayers on earth, and we, we've seen some of these enemies of God struck dead and silenced. We've seen abortion clinics closed. We've seen abortionists removed. We've seen persecutors of the church removed, like with Agustin Oneto, the dictator of Angola, who said that he had destroyed the Bible. There won't be a Bible in the place in the face of Angola in 10 years time you'll have to go to a museum to see what a Bible looks like and uh, God struck him dead um, on an operating table in Moscow while we were praying for God to intervene and to judge this persecute the church we saw the same thing with Silmora Michelle in Mozambique uh, with the Idiomen in Uganda uh, people who've been persecuting the church we've seen God intervene and you can't expect God to answer prayers that haven't been prayed and you can't expect uh, God to give victories when we don't go to war and so the whole arm of God includes 
all kinds of prayers, which includes imprecatory prayers, surely, because they're in the Bible. And we should be praying prayers like what you see in the Psalms. And the Psalms include prayers for justice, prayers to God, asking God to intervene to judge his enemies and to bring justice to the earth and relief to those who are suffering. So it's very appropriate for us to pray the Psalms. And this is how Martin Luther recommended we revive our devotional life. Start to pray through the Psalms, because the Psalms are the prayers, in many cases, of a man after God's own heart, David. And therefore, learning to pray the Psalms of David will and making them our own prayers and applying them to our own situation uh, is the best school of prayer we can have. Thank you, Peter. And uh, before we go, uh, I'm going to be including a link to uh, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church uh, Africa website, your website. Um, if you scroll down, folks, to the very bottom, then you can click on the Find Us on Facebook button and that takes you to their Facebook page. And it was last updated two days ago, so it's a regularly updated site. My question is, Peter, of course, you're going to be doing events on that day. It's, it's Monday today. Can you let the audience know if there's anything that they can sort of tr tune into live, something like that? Because if you're streaming anything, yes. I'm sure many people throughout the world would like to be a part of it, and it's got a great opportunity now for them to do so. Indeed, yes, we, we plan to have a um, recording and a live stream of our Sunday, the Sunday the 12th of uh, November. We'll have a Sunday the 12th of November um, live stream, prayer for the persecuted church and service, remembering the persecuted, what we can remember from them and learn. And uh, you'll find a lot of good resources there for that. So just go on to the idop-africa dot org website or the idop hyphen africa facebook page or frontline fellowship and you will find the good resources we would really like to meet anyone else in our general area if anyone's in the cape town area of south africa please contact us we have regular meetings every thursday night at our mission headquarters in rondebosch and uh, that includes the reformation society meeting and this coming thursday being the 9th of November, the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, we'll be having a real celebration about that at Livingston House here in Rondebosch. So please do get in touch with us. My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za. Peter at frontline.org.za or as the Americans say, ZA. Thank you, Peter. Just noting that down. So yeah, look at those. There's also, of course, you've got the Frontline Fellowship. Uh, Facebook. Um, I don't use Facebook, so what I d did was I just typed in Frontline Fellowship Facebook into Google, um, and of course uh, that comes up as well. So check both of those uh, to make sure you've got the relevant links so you can tune in. Now, as for timings, um, there's a lot of criticism for some of the things that South Africa has done, uh, particularly in recent years, but one thing that they are ahead of us on uh, throughout the West, is that they don't do these silly time changes, okay? So um, yes. Peter is generally, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago he was an hour ahead of me, now he's two hours ahead of me, so I'll let you know that. So he's two hours ahead of the UK, but the best thing to do, and I, I'm trying not to talk to you like children here, it's just I actually do this even before I, I email him about the times. I'm very, very 
you know, I like to check everything. But I type in current time South Africa into Google. And it literally, as soon as I type current, it comes up in the drop-down box because I use it so often, even though I know. But that's very useful so that you can just type that into Google wherever you are in the world. You'll know what time theirs is and you can compare it to yours and you can see if you are able to join the live stream when it is going to be streamed this Sunday, November the 12th. So, Peter, anything else you'd like to say before we go? Yes, um, our mission is continually under attack. We are trying to be uh, faithful witnesses for the Lord here in Africa, serving the persecuted church, working for reformation and revival, resistance to revolution. Um, we are trying to fight the new world order, promoting home education. There's a whole range of things we're involved in at all times. Just yesterday, we're having a remembrance service for the Rhodesia Association of South Africa, and I'm uh, a chaplain for the Rhodesia Association, uh, Chairman of the Rhodesia Association of South Africa and the Cape of Good Hope. We're working for Independence of the Cape of Good Hope from South Africa, and I'm Chairman of the Cape Independence uh, Forum, and we are trying to get things printed. Uh, books on a case for session is ready to be printed. We've got a book on uh, resistance to, um, to communism in Romania book, which is, in fact, the last book of my father-in-law, Bill Batten, which my wife works hard to bring to print, and we've got that ready to print any moment. Um, and our mission is just struggling for the support and finances needed to get these things to the printer and to be able to do the work that we need to do. I've got invitations to go and minister at, uh, at KwaZulu Natal at Kwasamanta Mission to thousands of young people in December. We've got so many ministry opportunities all the time which are being hampered just due to lack of funds. So, anyone wants to join with, partner with us. We have Give, Send, Go programs set up and people can access our books also through Print on Demand, printing through Lulu. Um, but uh, we do need our friends to stand with us this time, pray for us, and if at all possible, help us uh, to cover the cost of these upcoming projects. Thank you, Thank Peter. you very much, Andrew. Yeah, and just on that note, um, I'm on the... International Day of Prayer website, the link that um, we're including in today's show. I clicked on the donate button there and it takes me to uh, another page that you click on to go to a Give, Send, Go donation. Um, and it's the Give, Send, Go donation is called Literature for Africa. But I see the most recent donation was quite a while ago. Is this still active? Can people still donate to you through this Literature it for Africa? It certainly is active. Our Give, Send, Go is definitely still active and operational. But yes... We are struggling. We don't have enough funds for our projects. Um, I don't know if we've been throttled and strangled uh, by uh, social media shadow banning us or whatever, but um, the Gifts and Go is a Christian platform and they've been very reliable and we, we like them. And they've, they, I got to know them when um, the GoFundMe uh, stopped funding the truckers who were making a stand against a COVID cult in um, Canada and Justin Trudeau's dictatorship there. And uh, interestingly, when GoFundMe reneged, Gibson Go stepped forward and said, we'll help you and we don't even take a percentage. And so we got to, to learn about Gibson Go as a Christian platform and that they had the courage to stand up against the Canadian government and resist them impressed me. And we have used them since. And so they've been a, a lifeline of channeling support through to our mission. 
Thank you, Peter. Yes, so uh, one last, um, has, has the time been determined of when you plan to do the Sunday sermon and then people will know the time now or is that still being set up? I'm assuming it's going to be 11am on Sunday morning, this Sunday the 12th of November. That's when Quasis Avancha normally has, that's a Lutheran uh, Sunday morning service tends to be 11 o'clock, so that's when I expect it to be, 11am. Right, okay. So that means that'll be 9am UK time and you have to look up wherever you are in the world. But do double check back in case there's any change. But uh, of course, that's what uh, we expect. So, um, well, thank you, Peter. Anything else before we go? Well, it's so important that we remember the persecution. We can learn to the persecution. If we want to improve our spiritual health and the spiritual health of our churches, testimonies of these people have been willing to Stand for Christ, like Nicola Moldovano, will inspire us to higher standards of, of Christian commitment. So I do think it's a healthy thing to do for our own spiritual life and for the church of uh, any congregation we belong to. So I think IDOP Africa is not only good for the people that we're standing up for and speaking up for, and the fact that we can mobilize prayer and pressure to set captives free, uh, but that it will actually put our problems into perspective as well. Yeah, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to actually include a link to the Give, Send, Go page in the post for this show. As I've said, uh, since I scaled the show back, folks, I don't take donations, but I ask if any of you do want to donate and you have the wherewithal to do so, to send anything that you would have given to me to Peter, that is where uh, I like things to go now. And uh, Peter... Uh, it wouldn't have been possible for the show to be as successful had it not been for Peter's contribution. So that being said, let's wrap the show up now. I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today for a show entitled The Real Story of Persecution today. God willing, Peter and I will be back with you again next week. I plan to be back with you on Friday, sorry, Saturday. And until then, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day and bye for now. <laughs>